Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, just a housekeeping thing. I appreciate all that you're doing to leave reviews about um, the book I wrote called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Uh, if you haven't left a review, I'd sure appreciate it if you did on Amazon or at Deseret Book. And also, if you could rate this podcast on Apple that would and leave a review, that there are the things that you can do to help support this podcast. You can't donate, but you can do those kind of things. I'm really glad to have um, our guests on today's podcast. And we just started with a prayer, and we're going to start doing this podcast. Um, we don't overly script these. The best way I can describe to people coming onto the podcast, it's like going out to lunch and me just hearing your story. And only you can tell your story as good as you can. So that's kind of what we're doing here. We're just inviting you, our listeners, to lunch. And we're all going to hear from Dave Woods and Becca Clements. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thank, Thank you. Um, Dave Woods is in his early 60s. He's a gay Latter-day Saint, um, served a mission in Switzerland. Then at some point, um, separated himself from the church um, lived in the San Francisco area, and then about eight years ago, approximately reconnected with the church and is now active in the church, holds a calling as a temple worker, um, has been a ward clerk, a financial clerk, and lives in the North Ogden area or the Ogden area. And he's going to, this is mostly Dave Woods sharing his story as a gay Latter-day Saint. And being 60, this is a long road he's been on. This is multiple decades. And when I meet somebody in their 60s that's gay and a Latter-day Saint, um, back in as a teenager and a 20 and a 30-year-old, there wasn't much of a roadmap or much of an owner's manual. Um, and there's certainly better support, better understanding for um, younger people now than there was. But I hope because Dave's been on this road a long time that he will be able to share things to those of you that are new to this road or those of you that are trying to help LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, because um, he would know this really well since he's been walking it for many, many decades. Um, we also have Dave's niece, um, who is the one that connected us, Becca Clements, B-E-K-A-H Clements, who is also in the North Ogden area, I believe. Um, Becca is married, has three kids, an active member of the church, um, is an HR director for a domestic at a domestic violence shelter. That's probably a whole different podcast. She is currently a Relief Society teacher, and we're going to talk about a lesson that she gave in her ward, and a, um, a quote she gave that is one of the finest quotes about coming together in diversity as the same human family. So, is that okay for an introduction, you two? Perfect. Yes. Let's get Dave talking. I'm. I, <laughs> Since you've been on this route, we usually start kind of pre-mission and mission, and then it ends in your 20s, because most of my guests are in their 20s, but we need to start later. So let's let's um, get you home from your mission, and let's get you in your 20s. You're, um, All right. Talk about your 20s. So after getting home from my mission, like you said, I served in the Zurich German mission. I, um, I've always been in the arts. In high school, I was theater and all that good stuff, and dabbled in dance. But when I came back, I decided, well, I want to take tap dancing, be like Fred Astaire. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine from high school was taking a, a local studio. And so I just joined along. Eventually she dropped out. She dropped out and I, I ended up staying at that studio and doing tap and jazz and 
the teacher said, if you really want to be serious about ballet, uh, you better go to Salt Lake and go to Ballet West Academy, yeah. which I did. And I uh, eventually graduated from that school and, uh, and I was attending Weber State University when I got back, but transferred to the U of U. Um, then I found a little company in American Fork who needed extra men in their nutcracker that year. And I eventually started driving from Ogden all the way to American Fork. And it was really good teacher, good training, and stayed with them for a long period of time. Um, after that and graduating, well, not graduating from U of U yet, I transferred to BYU because it was too much of a drive and was in their department, their department of dance and, and spending time there. Uh, so I wouldn't have to drive so much from Ogden down to Provo all the way. Um, but after being at BYU for a while, I just did not feel that it was for me. And I uh, eventually got a full riding scholarship to go back to the University of Utah and uh, graduated from there from their ballet department. Um, after that, I applied to some graduate schools and went off to the University of Arizona in Tucson and spent years doing my graduate work there. And after that, I thought I'd just become a teacher. So I applied for some professorships, but uh, I got some dance contracts and moved back to uh, Alabama, stayed and danced with Montgomery Ballet for a while, and then went up to Kentucky and was with Lexington Ballet for about uh, a few years there. But I ended up finishing my career. I, well, this is like a, a period of 15 years expanding out. You're doing good. Um, <laughs> uh, I said I kind of had enough um, and sort of stopped my career there and grounded myself there. But during that whole period of time, as I told Becca, I was like I was like a bullet trained, zeroing in on a career, but uh, not really confronting myself and my sexuality. I knew I was um, gay way back, probably before I was the age of eight, but um, being raised in uh, our faith and stuff like that. Marriage would have been the path, of course, coming back. And I just didn't want to confront myself that way. But I thought, okay, it's time to stop this bullet train. I had to turn around and confront myself. And this happened when I was in Kentucky. And uh, first off, I said, how do you feel? And then to myself, talking to myself. Uh, well, first, I'm a child of God. I don't feel like I'm a sinner. Uh, I don't feel like being gay is a sin. I still feel like Heavenly Father loves me. Um, so, but where where do I stand in the church? Uh, how am I going to get that golden ticket to the celestial kingdom if I don't get married and have a family? And that's when I decided to step away from the church because I didn't think there was a place for me in this church at all. I still had a testimony during that time. I still believed in the temple covenants, but I stepped away from that because that's about being married, I thought, in a way. And that's, you know, how you make your juncture to the celestial kingdom. And and so I had to really pull myself away and evaluate where do I belong. And this church is not the road for me. Because this has never was really talked about at this given moment in time. Um, it was very scary to think that I could go and talk to my bishop because either I would be excommunicated or I'm afraid that a bishop might superimpose his um, prejudices against what I needed. And so there was really no avenue for me to go. Um, 
my family was the one the, the ones that sort of became my family, not my blood family, uh, were the ones in Kentucky that knew I was gay, um, accepted me for who I was am, um, and introduced me to other professional gay and, and couples that have been together for a long period of time. And uh, I joined the Lexington Gay Men's Chorus that broadened my horizons that way. And I've always felt comfortable with myself which is a little different maybe others that feel like God doesn't love them. And that's sad when I hear the stories about that has happened to other people or people that have been kicked out of their homes uh, for coming out to their parents, especially if they are members of the church, because we supposedly have more enlightenment and understanding about the eternities. Um, over a period of time of living in Kentucky, I thought I would like to be a little bit more around more gay people. And so I decided to move to the San Francisco Bay Area. I moved to Walnut Creek first. Um, but to get me there, I uh, decided to change my education. But by then, I was teaching a lot of dance. And, and uh, like I said, I had stopped dancing in, in the ballet companies. So I decided to become a pastry chef and did attend the Culinary Academy of San Francisco. That's cool. So that was my next career path and stuff like that. I also branched off into teaching fitness, which dancers usually do that. And I knew I could get a job moving into Walnut Creek, teaching fitness, and then going to the school in San Francisco. And I would BART in to San Francisco and finished up my school work about six months. Of course, I started meeting more people, more professional gay couples, lesbian and gay who have been in long-term relationships. And... People introduced me, hey, I've got a, a guy you think you'd make a good companion with and let's date and stuff like that. Um, and over that sort of a long period of time, nothing never really grew into a relationship. Maybe that's a blessing. Maybe it's not. Um, but during that time, living in Walnut Creek, I came home for Christmas. And usually I would only come home at Christmas for two or three days or so and then zip right back out. Um, and that was about the most we saw him That's, in a year. So, and I've said to Becca before, I'm a different, I'm a changed man from what you've seen over the years. You see these snippets of me coming in once a year, once a year. You put that together, that's not a real picture of how I grew or or the friends I had or the ones that I came out to, uh, the support system I have, um, but wishing that I would have my blood family be my support system too. It was at one Christmas that... I don't know if um, one of my cousins was wearing a pierced ear at that time, and this sounds kind of trite, but uh, they were teasing him. Oh, that's such a gay thing and stuff like that. Just turned the anger switch on me, and I finally told my sister. And I think I might have left that evening, and uh, she told my mom and the dad that I flew out the next day. So, and I told them what? That I was gay. And I said, You need to tell the family. Okay. And just, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a gentle, just talk with the family. This was a brute force straight out. I was sick and tired of hearing stuff like that. Plus you need to know, you need to know who I am. I'm happy with myself. And if you accept me, you do. If you don't, you don't. But I can't live a pretense anymore. Uh, especially with my family. You, you need how to know old, who I am. How long ago was that? Um, I would have been... It was at mid, 
late 30s, early yeah, 40s I would say when that mm-hmm. when that happened. So there's this all this time that you've all been in Kentucky, from, you've been in San Francisco. And this was the first time you just sort of told your told sister everyone. and yeah. asked your sister to tell everybody I'm gay. Tell, and tell mom, tell dad. Um, and the next day I flew out early and I said, I think I talked to my mom and I said, uh, the whole family needs to, to know. Call my aunts and uncles, tell everyone, do what you need to do. Um, and if if this is the last time I see you, this is the last time I see you, you know. Because you're worried they may cut you off because either of they're going to cut me off or they don't want anything to do with me uh you come to that that conclusion or you come to that bracing point i think almost every gay person who comes out comes to that point where if you do say something it's going to be one way or the other and you've got to prepare yourself for that um and but becca can say that i think the family did convene and we did and um to back up just a little bit, I had visited Dave once while he was in Kentucky. I actually visited him once while he was in Alabama and once while he was in Kentucky. That's cool. And you're the oldest. I'm the oldest niece. niece. And I had, um, before this trip to Kentucky, I had, it had always been in the back of my mind. I had wondered, you know, but, you know, we, we weren't like bringing it up as a family. And so I actually, um, girded all my strength as we sat across the table at dinner that night in Kentucky. And I asked him flat out and he said, no. And I look back on it now. Do you remember that Dave? I do have a recollection of it. Some of it, I think as Becca has reminded me, I sort of did purge the memory. That's okay. But, um, and I can see now that he just, he wasn't ready. You know, he, knowing the timeline now, he had a, a family, a, a friend family there in Kentucky that was supporting him. And, and he wasn't really ready to do that with our family. And, and that was fine. Um, so when, when he came home and, and told his sister, and I can't say it was like a total shock to me or anything like that. But um, one of the things that I remember the very most about that was my grandpa, who passed away just about two years ago, you know, he was a World War II veteran. He was a guy's guy, you know. And um, when my aunt told him, he he had two words, and that was all he ever said. He just said, holy smokes. And that was it. <laughs> That's dad. You know, that was it. It wasn't. Um, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or just a neutral comment? I think it's a neutral thing from him. Yeah. I, I. I've always known dad since he worked at Hillfield and was the chief chemist or the top engineer that worked his way up through the ranks, worked with colonels and everybody else. And here are all the different people from transgender people that might've worked at the base. And one of the colonels accidentally got a hold of that file of the person dad said that should not be in your eyes. So I knew he had a more open understanding and acceptance of other people. But then again, me, his, his son, you know, I'm sure that was very intimidating. And so for him, after he said the Holy smokes, it w- he never verbalized anything again. And I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. You know, he didn't, um, there was no freak out of he's not my son. He's not coming home. That was just kind of the end of it. Um, as far as, as he went and, it was kind of interesting because as David said, he wanted everyone to know. He said, tell everybody, get it out there, you know? And my dad, who is Dave's oldest brother, um, 
I just remember him saying very tenderly at the time, what does that mean for his position in the church? What does it mean? And and it wasn't in an angry way. It was in a really searching, you know, this was 20, 25 years ago. You know, what does that mean for him? What does that mean for his eternal progression? What does it mean for our family? And really, we didn't have an answer. We just sat and looked at each other, you know. And I remember my dad, um, once he found out, um, called Dave in San Francisco and just said, you know, I want you to know that I love you. You're my brother. Um, this doesn't change how I feel about you. And said to him, you know, I I pray for you every day, which I think was a, a little bit of a, a shock. Bit of a shock to me. And I think the other part was my dad said to him, you know, I know you're away from the church, but just remember that you can always pray. You can always pray no matter what. And I know you went a long time without praying. I went a long time without praying. I didn't, I, even though, like I said, I still believe that I have a loving Heavenly Father and Mother. Um, I just didn't know how to connect because where do I fit into this internal progress? Um, in Walnut Creek, I, after finishing culinary school and I started teaching a lot more fitness and getting a big uh, following that way, um, and then I eventually, this has to be kind of inserted too. I'm a Pilates practitioner. So I'm a full-fledged all apparatus teacher. That's kind of plays into this whole thing. Um, mom un, 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 unexpectedly passed away. Um, and we're in the family. We usually take care of our funerals quite quickly. So it happened on a Friday. And that Monday we had a viewing and Tuesday the funeral. And I flew back. But like Becca had mentioned maybe before, at the last family prayer, when they closed the coffin, it did come to my mind. I'm going, where do I stand as far as the family? How do I fit in to this eternal part of what I feel is in my spirit? And I, I know from my patriarchal blessing, but understanding that I was born in the covenant, that that was one tether string I have back to heaven. But how, again, how does that fit? How does that fit to me and fit into the gospel? Um, but after returning back to wow. California... That's a pretty powerful moment and a great question. Tell our listeners your mom's name. Marilyn. Marilyn. Jack and Marilyn. Okay. Um, uh, high school sweethearts. Uh, didn't live too far from each other when they grew up. Waited for each other through the war. And I think it was, I, I was sent to them. I feel that. What a great question. You know, I've been at a casket closing just a few times in my life, but that's a pretty dramatic moment. My parents are alive. I've never done what you've done. But then to be in your situation and wondering, that just sort of brings reality and it the question you asked is a great question and it gives me and hopefully our listeners an insight into your heart and just the complicated road you've been walking for all those years without answers and without an, I call it an owner's manual roadmap. And I just think you just have been doing the very best you can. That's true. But it's um, a really good question. And I just wish we had more answers. I, that's true. It's, takes a lot of faith to sometimes hang on uh, 
not knowing if that answer will be answered, question will be answered until the next life, till we pass through the veil. I eventually moved into San Francisco and consolidated all my energy and teaching at the Pilates studio there. That's sort of where that leads back to. And um, looking for an apartment in San Francisco, I wanted to be within 10 minute walking radius of the studio and looking around, looking around, looking around. And I never wanted to look at an apartment that didn't have pictures uh, like Craig's, Craigslist or something. And here's an apartment I go look at and no pictures. And the guy shows me around. And I said, I didn't bring my information, so I can't fill out the little application. He says, no, no, sit down, fill it out. Well, come to find out that that apartment is kitty corner from the church in San Francisco on Pacific and Gulf. And I happened to take that apartment. Um, so I, every Sunday I'd see churchgoers go in and out of the church and stuff like that. And, and eventually at the studio in San Francisco, a new trainer was hired and, um, they happened to change, uh, kind of the rules and regulations for the trainers. This new trainer, her classes had discount to it. So of course, all the people are going to gravitate to her class and not to my class. So it made me a little bit angry and her name was Cheyenne. And one day we're just waiting at the desk for our, our clients to come in and train them. And Cheyenne's talking, talking, and her husband's named David also. And David uh, spent two years somewhere. Um, and I go, um, so he's been on a mission. And just a shocker, I said, well, guess what? I've been on a mission also. But she knew I was gay. She knew my background and then walked off to my uh, client. Wow. And, uh, and Becca probably needs to tell a little bit more of the story too, because uh over a period of time, Cheyenne would invite me to come to church, come to a sacrament meeting. And uh, eventually I did come in. But let me have Becca tell you what, because I had her talk to Cheyenne. I wanted to have a little bit more background mm -hmm. from friends of mine who have a different perspective yeah. than just me. So for all these years since David has come back to the church, I have felt this profound gratitude for Cheyenne and for her ability to be bold. And so um, I called her three cool. weeks ago and I said, I, I started out with tears and I said, um, I just want to thank you. And she says, you have nothing to thank me for. He's such a wonderful part of my life. And so I asked her for her perspective and, and the way she said it was, he hated me. She says, I just thought that he hated me. And she said, I wanted to be his friend and I wasn't going to take no for an answer. And she said, I would do all these little things to try and befriend him. And he was very cold. I think she used the word prickly. And um, she said, I can be. yes. <laughs> and she said, she just wouldn't give up. And then that conversation, she made a comment one day about her husband having spent two years in Mexico City. And, you know, you hear two years abroad, it sparks something. And, and so he kind of threw out his little shock value of, oh, well, I did that too. I went on a mission too. And Cheyenne, bless her, didn't have one bit of you know, oh, shock, you did that. She was immediately like, why, why aren't you there on Sunday? Why aren't you at church with us on Sunday? Don't you live right across from the church? And she was bold, you know, and Cheyenne is bold. And, yeah. and tell him your reaction when Cheyenne asked that. I just wasn't ready. And, uh, you know, I doubt that I would be appreciated there or even allowed to walk in that church. And 
sometimes on Sunday, I my apartment had two bay windows that bowed out and I might be working on something on my table or at the computer and I'd hear someone call up to me from the street and it'd be Cheyenne and David. Um, they had little linger, linger longer afters and little treats and she'd come up and give me cookies and that. But it took maybe a year or more before I would, and her asking, uh, and this became a long, a long and beautiful friendship between David and Cheyenne and her kids that were born with there. But um, she didn't stop. She really persisted to the point that I eventually did go to sacrament meeting, but I would only go in and sit in the foyer on the couch. And the first time I went, I was shaking. I thought I'd be hit by blunder, but I thought, hit by lightning. Um, and I would not go into the chapel. And that was for a period of time. And in the beginning, she got him there because she was blessing her baby. And he didn't want to go. And and she kind of used this, well, if if I was baptizing my baby Catholic, would you come? You know, that kind of a thing. And that's hard to hard to refute. And she said, I just, you know, I want you to come because you're my friend, not become the because right. you're part of the church. Yeah. So over a period of time, I, I did start coming to sacrament meeting, but would sit out just on the couch and eventually come in and sit at the back of the chapel when I felt more comfortable. And, and it was maybe just uh, when I had started coming back at the beginning of coming back, uh, David, her husband, told me that they're going to have a fireside and they're going to have assembly there and they're going to have the bishop from, uh, I think it was the, the Bay War, because I... Uh, there was the Golden Gate Ward and the Bay Ward um, talk about gay issues and stuff like that. And I was curious because I had started coming back. And so there was a fireside and they had uh, a nice lady from the community that works with um, LGBTQ uh, 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 teenagers who are suicidal or get kicked out of their home. And uh, she said that the church is really heading up this liaison between the two and um, that... Uh, there's help out there for them when this happens. And then the, the, it was open up to all the members asking about gay people and stuff like that. People were raising their hands. We were told that being gay is a sin, that da-da-da. And they stopped them right there and said, it is not a sin to be gay. That they have every right to temple blessings, to be in part and members of the church. And so that type of attitude needs to change. And that really melted my heart to have a better understanding that uh, I do have a place. And over a period of time, like I say, I, I was more comfortable about coming to church. Um, and eventually uh, Bishop Atkinson, who was the bishop at the time, invited me in and, and to talk with him and welcoming me and saying, you do have a place here. Um, over a period of time, I, as one progresses, I felt like maybe it is time for me to even return to the temple. And uh, as I went back in to talk to Bishop Atkinson, he said, I've been waiting for you to come back and talk about this. It has to come from my own self, but to have those blessings restored. Um, and I did take the temple prep classes um, and friends of mine that were from Dubai who were coming in and out of Dubai, who had an uh, apartment there, um, Kindasuja uh, taught one of the temple prep classes and they become very good friends of mine. They were temple workers in the Oakland temple. And what spurred me on to become a temple worker was uh, Kinda came up to visit in Ogden a couple of years ago and gave me a bunch of her family names. 
And so I was taking them to the temple and it became this kind of catalyst of pursuing more knowledge. And I think the way to do that would become an ordinance worker. I think he was in the temple so much more than than temple workers that they thought they might as well put him to work. It, it kind of got to a point where I'd go in on a Friday and uh, then going to do baptisms Saturday morning and do family names. And it became this kind of wanting to understand more, to be calm in the temple, to have the spirit talk to me and speak to me. And that's when I believe enlightenment comes and more knowledge comes. And I think that becoming a ordinance worker was just a progression onto that. This is a miracle. It really is. Um, just before COVID hit, uh, he asked me uh, to come on a Saturday morning with him to the temple to do some family names, some ceilings. And, um, Ogden to Ogden at temple. the Ogden Temple. And um, I was thrilled to go, you know, it was, it was great. And I got there and, you know, you hustled to get in there, got dressed, got in there. And it wasn't until um, I knelt down across the altar from him that what you just said came to my mind so clearly, this is a miracle. This is a miracle for us to be here across the altar from each other. And, you know, as you look at those mirrors facing each other, I couldn't help but think of um, Dave's parents, my grandparents, who I love more than I can ever express what they must be feeling in that part of the eternities of the mirrors and those that we were doing the names for. And it was very, very emotional for me. And at one point, I, um, in between names, I asked if we could pause for a moment. And I think it was just the two of us and the witnesses and the mm -hmm. sealer in the room. And I turned to the witnesses and the sealer and I said, I just want to tell you that you really are witnessing a miracle here. And I shared a little bit of Dave's story and said how privileged that I felt to be there. Um, how much courage I felt like he had to come back to the church and the fact that he had made the temple his second home and, and the sealer and the witnesses seemed genuinely touched by that. Wow. Holy smokes comes back to mind. <laughs> I wonder if your father, your grandfather said that very same phrase as he may have witnessed what was going on that day. True. Yeah. Holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Becca, before we, we came to the podcast, um, sent me some podcasts to listen to you and, and to have a little bit more understanding of, um, of the different stories and stuff like that. And in your book, one of the things, a couple of things that kind of really step out, step out to me is how you say we need to be able to touch the cross of those, um, that is so different than, in my mind, thinking we want to pick up someone's burden and carry that basket for them. We can do that and set it down and leave them. That does not really touch the cross of someone. To feel their pain and to feel what they're going through, because no one can carry my cross but me. You can help me. You can, you can come in and you can touch my cross and help me and support me. And that helps, but that really steps out to me uh, of understanding the LGBTQ people and 
ones that are in the church. And uh, even coming back, I kind of told Becca, it's kind of like this bell curve over kind of the sweep of coming back. And um, and there are some answers that are that can't be answered, questions that can't be answered. And that again is like temple marriage. How does that pertain to me? Whereas my place. Um, and sometimes I felt like I've tamped down or tempered down my love for one another. And I sometimes I've said I probably do come across being a little bit prickly sometimes because how can you let that out being gay and not have it be, uh, be conceived as as ov overtly being a, being a sinner or, or still people in the church that have a prejudice against uh, people of, of that um, sexual orientation. So sometimes it's hard. I sometimes feel like, do I, every time I move or go to a different bishop, do I need to go through my story all over again? Um, it's just sometimes hard. Where do I find a spiritual leader that I can confide in when I need some questions answered uh, without their preconceived notions come forward, but that they are carrying the, the, the mantle of Christ to be able to help us and fulfill our questions. Um, so those are some questions. That's great questions. As Becca. we were talking about um, this issue just last Sunday, I said, when he talked about, do you replay your story with every bishop, you know? And I said, well, anything that you've repented of or put in your past, you don't have to bring it up again. And he said, no, that's not what I mean. He said, it's how do I establish that relationship of trust and support? And that was a whole different way for me to think about it. You know, you're not replaying your story because you have something to work through. You're replaying it because you need someone to touch your cross, you know, and, and it does take a leap of faith. I know, especially for Dave coming home to the ward that he grew up in, you know, a lot of those people have, have passed away now, but there's right. a lot of people who are still in that ward yes, that know me from when I was a little kid. Yeah. And so it's been a real leap of faith to do that and, and to come back home and, and start over, especially after being in a place like San Francisco, the dynamics of that ward were very different, very different on how openly gay people, um, dress differently <laughs> and just the welcomeness of it and the acceptance of the different people that come in and out of those wards in San Francisco. Um, when I returned to church or coming back and full-fledged and stuff like that, I knew, and this is something that I've said to Becca or I've said to my prior bishops, I said, I, if I choose to come back into myself and be in good standing, I'm probably going to be on my own and alone and by myself. I've said this before, and maybe it's rude, maybe it isn't, but sometimes I say the social cultural threads of the gospel are so interwoven with the saving principles of gospel that they are sometimes misstrued as true doctrine, and they are not. And sometimes I felt like I've got to rip those threads out, and I will only deal with the covenants that bring me back to my heavenly father and heavenly mother. That's pure gold, what you're saying. Can you give us lonely. an example of that? Of um, Just kind of decoupling doctrine from culture and... I think it's steering away from 
hearing gossip gossip about other people who might be struggling or helping others that are in the same situation as me, um, lending a helping hand, um, confiding in those that understand me, um, which sometimes are few. When I decided to return to the temple and renew my temple covenants, I flew home. The Auckland Temple was being in construction and the family, Becca and the family came to the Bountiful Temple and went through. And then I returned back to San Francisco. And one of my um, MTC teachers, uh, I was in a, uh, a group of six elders who went to the same mission it was very different. We had five teachers. One of them, our teachers is gay. We didn't know it at the time, but uh, kept in contact with him and came to visit me in San Francisco. And after I said, I've returned to the temple and stuff, he said, I will give you a little bit of a warning. You are going to be fodder for the adversary now more than you've ever been. And there's been temptations laid upon me that I never thought I had had before past life whether it's boyfriends or other things coming in that I've chose to distance myself so that those temptations don't come in. Um, I've kind of gone off track a little bit on what we were asking, but that going to the temple and renewing covenants and having that as a part of my weekly renewal is what's helped me sort of pull the social aspect of the threads away from what the doctrine is in my mind. I don't think I'm that much of a stronger person than someone else, but I made a promise to myself, and maybe this is related to what you've asked me, is coming back, I made a promise to myself that whether I fall down and I need to repent, which we do every day, that I'll get myself up and I'll stay on the covenant path because I am not a broken individual. Being gay, again, doesn't change how my Heavenly Father looks at me, and that I have a right to be here, regardless of what is said or heard, that that is my goal. That is my sole goal, to come back to my Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. You're really strong, and you're really owning your own story, and you're creating boundaries at times on what's not helpful for you. Yes. Um, I think you're doing just a remarkable job. And I think you've just been relying on personal relation and just this the spirit that's with you on how to navigate this. I go back to the feelings that came to your mind of why you didn't want to go to church in San Francisco. And some of the words you said were, you know, they wanted, you know, I won't be welcome there. They don't want people like me. And I think that's helpful for all of our listeners um, as we're trying to improve the culture in our wards is realizing there's probably a lot of people on the membership records of the ward that would go, but have concluded whether it's reality or not, that is their perception. And some of that's because we go to church and we make, we make gay jokes and we say unkind things about people that are, have doubts about our church or people that have stepped away or people we've, we don't sometimes say kind comments about everybody. And then people that, are barely hanging on or wondering if they come back, they conclude the way you do because they're just not sure how they're going to be received because they don't fit the mold. And I love what Elder Ballard talked about in our last April conference. He talked about most of the adults in the church are not married. You're one of those, Dave. Yes. 
And he talked about that's the reality of the church and will probably increase and in how we need to create a feeling of belonging. He used that word multiple times to that talk. Elder Gong did too. And Brene Brown, one of my favorite um, social scientists, talks about the need to belong. And we have not done a good job in our church to create a feeling that you belong. And I would think, you know, I don't want to be heavenly parents or pass judgment here, but I think in some level that feeling of not belonging and not knowing how to make your way forward, I think you did the best you could. And I'm not sure your heavenly parents were too surprised that you spent some time out of the church um, because it was a hard time to be in the church. Um, I agree. And so I hope that we're really kind to people, listeners that have felt that have just not fully participating in the church right now. And let's, we don't know their story. We don't know their cross. We don't know what's caused them. There's probably a lot of trauma that has occurred in your life that's sort of church-related. Um, even seeing church buildings at some point may have been triggering for you. And um, so there's something about just protecting your emotional health that caused you to need to separate for a period of time, but then the courage to sort of lean back into that pain um, and walk into that church in San Francisco, that took a lot of courage because you're kind of leaning back into the pain that you've probably felt and kind of healed yourself from to some extent. But on another extent, you had a testimony of the church the whole time. Yes. And you kind of owned that and you just had the courage to lean into pain, but you didn't quite know how that's going to work. And and to fully participate in the church, am I going to be alone for the rest of my life? How's that going to work? Correct. <laughs> Doesn't sound particularly fun. No. <laughs> um, my wife and I, after this podcast, are going out to dinner, you know, and I recognize that celibate gay and lesbian people in the church don't have that privilege that I have and your sister, your niece here, Becca. So the other comment that you've said, um, I didn't really realize this, but you know, when you were in your 20s, being gay just in itself was an excommunicatable. Yes. There was no separation of the church between orientation and behavior. Just being gay was enough to cause you to be excommunicated. Um, so that happened a lot, as you know. Right. And then it sounds like when you came back and you heard some of the training, you realized the church had separated orientation from behavior. Right. And that is a for those of you that have been on this road for a long time, my younger listeners have always learned that. But in your 60s, that is something from a long view listeners that is fascinating to realize that that is a, that's a major paradigm shift that the church has made is this separation from orientation and behavior. And then there's other major changes that we talk about in the book. Like you can't choose, you didn't choose this, so you can't unchoose it. <laughs> Correct. And I've always felt, I've felt that. I never felt like this is a choice that I've gone to. This is my makeup. This is me. But like you said, I had to lean into the pain of the past. And that is something I've said to Becca before. Returning to the church was coming up with past notions and things that I knew I'd have to put into a different perspective. But it was painful to come back and still know that the truth of my testimony will see me through. For some guests returning to the, when you return to the church, you also, in your case, return to the temple. And some actually find the temple 
um, almost more of a balm of Gilead than the congregation, because the congregation, you can still, there's unscripted narrative there. People can kind of go off and right. sometimes say unkind things from an uneducated standpoint. Why the temple is a little more scripted, you know, the endowment right. is word for word. And, right. and there's generally not patrons sort of sharing their thoughts that at times can be really wonderful, but at times if you're LGBT, it can be a little painful. Is, mm -hmm. is there any of that in your life that you just feel walking in the temple, you just know it's safer than the congregation? Or are they both safe places for you? I think you were correct. The temple feels more of a safe place to me. I am dressed in white like we all are. It is scripted. It is a place of learning. It's a place where I feel I am more accepted than being in a congregation. Why do you feel more accepted? I Maybe I feel the love of our Savior and our Heavenly Father there more because sometimes I feel like uh, at times being in the ward or being in um, gospel doctrine class, uh, I've heard things said and I, I kind of accept it or do I raise my hand and say that's, that's just not right to say. Um, one time um, I had just moved back from San Francisco and um, and someone said, ah, oh, San Francisco, bad place, this, that, and the other. And how do the members, they live there. And so I had to raise my hand and say, they want members there. They want the church to grow. There are good things there. Like there's good and bad everywhere. Or one little instance going back to Kentucky, I'm in gospel doctrine class and someone says that they are getting married. This is going to be their second wife. And uh, kind of was along the line that those of you that are single and older and over the age, you're just, you're, you're sinners. And, you know, this is, you're, you're not just following what the church is doing and stuff like that. I almost raised my hand and said, I'm gay. That would have been a big coming out. <laughs> and why don't you give me your second wife? Because then maybe I've got the golden ticket. Have you thought? The golden ticket. <laughs> and, and I think maybe sometimes we don't always think from the mantle of Christ, I guess is how I would say it, that do we think before we speak? Is that being too held back? Or do we need to just be more in tune with the spirit as in the ward that we be careful about what we say? We don't know how many more in the church are are gay and haven't dared come out or even say anything after years and years and years because they're they're afraid of being perceived one way or the other and yet they they've heard all this stuff all, all, all along but they are either shy or afraid of saying something and and afraid of their place in it because that's what they know that's what they've grown up i just like you said i think i had to go away from the church to come back is it a risk yeah is it a risk that i maybe never would have come back true but as i look back past different things that and different things that have happened in my life whether it was my good friends outside the church that were my family i see spiritualness that has guided me through and saved me through some dark times it's great i hope you realize dave how articulate and insightful and helpful you are you are a gifted man in many areas um Becca, talk about this time when you had your Uncle Dave and he wasn't in the church. Um, it sounds like you did a pretty good job and you were connected to him, but what do you wish you had done different? There's and this so is kind of you talking to LDS people who have 
a loved one outside the church right now? There's so many things that um, I wish I would have done differently. Um, Like I said, when he came out to our family, there was never any thought of, you know, that you're not a part of our family. You're disowned. There was never any of that. But as I look back now, I so wish that I would have taken a more active part in his life. You know, like it wasn't until after the fact that I knew that he was in the Bay Area Gay Men's Choir, you know, and I look back on that now and I think, oh, I wish that I would have known and I would have flown down when there was a performance. You know, I wish I would have had the courage to say, you know, tell me about who you're dating, you know, things like that. And I did have one opportunity. I was going to a conference in San Francisco and I was at the conference all week. And then my husband flew down for the weekend. And so I had called Dave and said, would you like to meet up with us in the city? And he was thrilled to meet up with us. And, um, we had a great time. He took us to a fun restaurant and I feel like we walked about 10 miles that night. We, he showed us all the best places in San Francisco and it was getting late. And then he said, well, let's stop for Giardelli ice cream, you know? And I was like, wow, it's getting late. I'm really tired. And as we were sitting there having dessert, the thought came to my mind, he is hungry for home. He is hungry for connection with us more than just three days at Christmas, you know? And that was before he started to come back to the church. And I realized at that time, you know, he, he does care for us. He does miss us. He does want that connection. And, and, you know, I can blame it on a thousand things. I can say, you know, that was in the thick of the time that I was having babies and kids in diapers. And, but you know what, that isn't really an excuse because I could have found better ways to reach out more than just the feeling of, you know, we love you. We're not disowning you. You know, that, that really isn't enough. That isn't as, as we talked about, I definitely was not, um, touching his cross at that time. And I, and so I really regret that if I could go back, I would change that. Um, we did start to talk a lot more once he started to come back to church. Um, that's when I started to learn about Cheyenne and he would tell me little things that had happened at church. Sometimes he kept me honest. He would say, have you read the Sunday school lesson this week? He had always read it before me, you know, um, things like that. And then I remember, I don't know if you remember this, the first time that he was asked to speak in sacrament meeting after he had come back. It was a little while after I came back and Bishop Axton asked me to talk in sacrament meeting and uh kinda suja was kinda was also asked to do it and her husband uh was the first counselor in the bishopric and he asked me you want to talk and i said only if you get your wife kinda to talk and then he she says well he i said the same thing only if you get david to talk anyway um that talk did i did map out my return to the church a little bit and uh and how i was feeling and um uh and what was going on. So it, it was, it was frightening to stand up. It was frightening to even be asked to say a prayer when I hadn't prayed in, in years. And, and, uh, the gospel doctrine teacher, uh, Mary Iverson, uh, when I first, first day I was back in, uh, in, uh, gospel doctrine asked me to say closing prayer. And that whole time I sweated. I don't think I even knew what the lesson was by the time <laughs> I, I, she asked me to close the, 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 
that that meeting anyway. And I know as he was preparing to give that talk, I remember um, he'd written a draft and we were talking, you know, video chatting and he was asking me, you know, what do you think of this part? What do you think? And it was beautiful. Like he said, it was kind of talking about his story and return. And it was around Easter, I believe that you gave that Mm -hmm. talk and just um, the way he wove in what the atonement means to him. It, it was really, really beautiful. And so I felt like we started to connect, um, even more at that time, but I wish that, um, that I would have been more proactive, you know, and, and you say so many times that I appreciate so much in the book that sometimes I think we feel this hesitancy to ask someone about things that are outside the, the path of our church. And it doesn't mean that you condone it. It doesn't mean that, um, that you are any less faithful to your covenants, it means you love and care about someone, that you take an interest in them. You know, I would ask my kids what they're doing in certain classes at school. You know, I asked my son about his engineering class. I don't really want to know what he's doing, you know, in the class, but I care about him and I care about his education. So I ask, and, and I could have done so much better, you know, asking those questions didn't mean it didn't belittle my faith at all, you know? And so I do regret that. Looking back though, and we, Becca and I have talked about this. I, I have no ill, ill feeling that that didn't happen. I, like I say, I'm a very moving forward type of a person. I mean, there's times when I, uh, I sang with the Oakland gay men's chorus that uh, I wish people would have come out, found me seen our show and, and did stuff or, uh, when when I was in Walnut Creek, people knew I had a master's in choreography and and I was a former dancer. And so Diablo Light Opera asked me to choreograph shows for them. And these are big deals. And down huge. at Hayward Little Theater, doing stuff. And hey, come out and see the show I'm doing. And uh, one of the dancers got kicked out of one of the shows I choreographed, and I didn't find out about it until that evening. So I had to put myself in the show, or um, they were put on Lacage. And I was asked to audition for it and got in. And there's, you know, little bits of things before I came back to the church as wanting that kind of blood family to have uh, support. But again, it's sometimes miscommunication. Just ask, just say, you know, ones that I dated or when I was in Kentucky and just say, what are you doing? Start a conversation. Um, and it's kind of where it's both ways yeah. a little bit. Do I really share my life with them? Are you really interested or are they willing to step over and, and ask and hear things that might make them feel a little uneasy? And, you know, he's offered some beautiful um, offerings for our family. He has five nieces. He's made three of the nieces wedding cakes, which were um, beyond a work of art. I mean, I have people, my one sister, people to this day still say, remember that cake. Uh, he made my veil for my wedding. You know, he's, he's done very, he's used his talents in very special ways to bless us. And when he talked about dancing with Utah regional ballet, when I was a little girl, uh, my grandparents would take us every Christmas to see him in the nutcracker. And I remember just feeling this sense of immense pride, you know, that there he was front and center. And, and even one time kind of leaning over to the person next to me. That's my uncle. He's the snow prince, you know, things like that. But I wish that he would have said more to us, you know, 
this is what I'm doing. This is and and vice versa, that we would have been been more open. And um, you know, I think that we have been accepting, but something came to my attention. Uh, it was the night I went up to see David and ask him, how would you feel about if I reached out to Richard Osler in this podcast? And and my kids were in the living room and my husband and I was talking to Dave. And on the way home uh, in, from the backseat of the car, my 16-year-old son said, hey, mom, I never knew Dave was gay. And I stopped and I said, really? And he said, I guess maybe it was kind of always in the back of my mind. And then my nine-year-old daughter jumps in. I didn't either, but maybe it was in the back of my mind. And for a minute, I had this proud parent moment like, look, we raise these kids to be like so accepting, you know, like it's not a big deal. And so I was having a little puffed up parent moment, like, look how accepting they are. Cause I said, how does that make you feel? And they were both like, oh, we don't think any of different of him. We love him just the same. And then when I got home, I thought that was not a proud parent moment. A proud parent moment would have been if I was having a really open dialogue with them all the way along. But it never even occurred to me to do that, you know, because he came out long before they were born. And, you know, but I really felt like we should be having more of a dialogue this way. And so the next weekend we were going to St. George as a family. And so on the way down, I said, hey, you guys, I want to have a, a talk. And we talked a long part of the way to St. George. And we had a really good, really open discussion. My 16 year old son has a transgender friend and he talked and, and, you know, we talked about how does that intersect with the gospel and, and we had a really great talk. And so, um, so I'm mending my ways, you know, even with my kids to realize that, yeah, that wasn't such a proud moment. We should have been having more open discussions all the way along. I think these open discussions um, just create a feeling that you're a safe person as a parent to talk to. The way you're treating everybody signals to your kids that you're a safe person as they need you in their life in those tender moments. And if you're saying kind things and and putting your words into action by having your uncle in your home and in your life and recognizing having LGBTQ people in your home um, adds to your home and creates a feeling of love and acceptance and Dave's contributions. And Dave, you are pretty more than just one dimensional guy. Um, you're multidimensional. I'm going back to BYU. Where did you live at BYU? Um, did you ever live at Carriage Cove? I think that was right. Carriage Cove. Yes. You know, I think we were roommates. Oh my heavens. I lived at Carriage Cove on the and I had a roommate that was a ballet dancer at BYU. That would have been me. And I never got to know you. I was quite busy going in and out, I know. Um, My friend, and I can't remember which friend it was, but the two of us moved in there, and there were two roommates already there that were older than us. When you the ballet dancer at BYU. Mm -hmm. This is either first floor or second floor apartment. Correct. Uh-huh. And it was just for one semester, and then we moved to the other side of Carriage Cove. I never saw you again. But I've thought about you. Wow. <laughs> this is amazing. And I, I probably wondered if you were gay. 
but I recognize probably pragmatic. There's lots of ballet dancers that aren't gay. Correct. And there's some that are, just like right. in all walks of life. Wow. This is very amazing. Kind of come full circle. Yeah. I do remember you. Mm -hmm. I remember I was busy either dancing with the company in BYU, so I was in and out a lot. I You're always in and did. out a lot. And I, I was busy. I was in graduate school. Um, I think, I can't remember this is, I think this is second floor apartment because I think I moved. Um, is a two-year program, so I can't remember if we lived for a whole year, but it was another guy and you, but I don't think you knew the other guy. You were just kind of kept to yourself and were busy. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever had a real conversation with you. I think that's true, yeah. And I was busy. I And I don't think I was overly homophobic or distanced myself from you, but I did never engage with you. No, and I, you were busy because you were in graduate school. But I've thought about you. Interesting. Probably a few, many, I don't know, many times, but I've thought about you. I could never remember your name, but I remember having a, a ballet dancer roommate at BYU. And I've always wondered what became of you. And here you are <laughs> in my home. And you know my story. Telling your story. And yeah. I had that impression earlier in the podcast to ask you where you live. And that, I just wanted to make sure that. And I looked at your name and it just became more and more familiar as this podcast went along. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, there you go, listeners. <laughs> Unscripted podcast stuff. Um, I like this word prickly to describe your personality. To me, that is a sign that there's some woundedness there and you need to put on a little bit of a defense to protect yourself. I Correct. sense behind that prickliness is just a wonderful, huge heart that's full of love and kindness and goodness. So listeners, when we meet people that are prickly or a little short or a little like that, maybe Cheyenne at the Pilates studio felt about you. I hope we are patient enough to kind of maybe wonder if we knew their story, we would sort of have empathy for their prickliness, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. Um, and just be patient with people that may just be wired a little different than us because everybody's got a story and there's a lot of pain in your story. <laughs> um, there's probably a lot of trauma and, um, but there's been a lot of healing. Yes. Talk about Dave, how we should treat LGBTQ Latter-day Saints that aren't going to church and have no desire to return right now. I think you just got to give them a lot of love. You've got to give them uh, space to be themselves. Just like Cheyenne, invite, invite, and don't stop inviting even after 50th time that they say no. Just before I moved back home, um, uh, our bishop started a family home evening group of gay members, and it was inactive and active members. And I know it was drawing the inactive ones to come back. And I was only a few times able to, to attend that before I moved back home, but I'm going, this is just a forward thinking bishop. It needs to be all over. That it doesn't matter that you're not attending, that that you're, you're not active or things are going on in your life, but to pull in these LGBTQ 
members to make them feel loved and in a safe place. There's a quote in the book from Harper Forsgren that basically says, we as Latter-day Saints need to stop loving each other because our love will bring them back and love people because they deserve to be loved. That really changed things for me. You know, I always, I love people to return. So I would always invite everybody outside the church listeners to return like you have. But I would also just invite us to love people where they are and not look at people outside the church that need to be rescued or, or that their standing with God is unfavorable. Let's just leave all of that way of seeing to our heavenly parents and their perfect understanding. Because I think that perhaps separates us and helps us, keeps us from lifting their burden and hearing their story. I love, you know, and some who are not active in the church, their family just sees them that way. They don't see all their accomplishments, but I hope that you know, and you felt some of this, I think, that, you know, I wish my family could see all the things I'm doing. Correct. Um, and that's an honest core human emotion that we all have. And there's, we shouldn't ever be embarrassed that, that we want, as we are in our very finest moments, the people, our blood family, to use your vocabulary, is aware of what we're doing and supportive and, and saying, holy smokes, I had no idea that my son could, did all of these different things. We need that. And there's, and so I just hope that as we have relationships with people out of the church, we just don't see them because they're, that's not the way we first see them. I don't think our heavenly parents see people not out of the church that way first. 99% of their children on earth aren't in the church right now. Um, so let's just see them as the same spirit brothers and sisters and their goodness and accomplishments. And, um, Becca, I want to come to your Relief Society lesson and your quote, and I mm -hmm. want to make sure that either of you, we're kind of at the end of the time allotment, but um, I'm still struck that we're roommates, Dave. I'm blown away. <laughs> that is just crazy. Um, but Becca, I want this quote that you sent me, I want you to read that and maybe you can give context for sure. how that quote came about. Um, last fall, I was asked to teach a Relief Society lesson in my ward, and it was um, from Sister Eubanks' talk where she referenced the University of Washington rowing team. Um, their stories detailed in the book, The Boys in the Boat, which is a wonderful book. And against all odds, they won Olympic gold. And she talks in, the, in her talk about this ethereal thing called swing. And it's when everyone rows together in such perfect unison that you reach a higher level of competition. You're, you're almost one body in moving this boat through the water. And so as I prepared this talk, this is what I said to the sisters in our ward. I said, for our boat to swing in unison, we need you if you have gay or straight children. We need working women and full-time homemakers. We need women with children, those coping with the pain of infertility, and those that will not have children in this life. We need you if you are married, single, divorced, or widowed. We need those who are depressed, those who deal with crippling anxiety, as well as those who can lift the burdens of those in the pit of despair. We want those who have a temple recommend, those that have never had a recommend, and those who are working to get to a place where they can renew their recommend. We need introverts just as much as we need extroverts in this boat. 
those with strong testimonies, wavering testimonies, and those who have never gained a testimony belong in our boat. There's a seat in the boat for converts, investigators, and those who come from pioneer stock. We need those dealing with crippling illnesses as much as we need those in perfect health. We need women of all colors, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and political affiliations. If you can fight the fight, we need you as much as those who can make peace. We need those whose husbands struggle with pornography addiction. We need you if you are overweight or stick thin. If you are suffering with substance abuse or can be the support system for someone who is, we need you on our team. We need those that cook and bake as well as those who support DoorDash. We need you if your husband is a righteous, active priesthood holder, an inactive priesthood holder, or does not hold the priesthood at all. We need those with a million dollars in the bank and those who are living paycheck to paycheck. We need those who want to be in the boat as well as those who don't. It's my prayer that as a church, a country, and a human race, we'll realize how much we need all people in our boat if we are truly to attain swing. And I just told the sisters in my ward, I'm really grateful to have each one of them in my boat. And this could go well beyond the sisters. This is everyone in the gospel of Christ, that we need every single one of them in our boat. And one morning I was getting ready for work and um, I was blow drying my hair. and, And I had this thought come to me about people who are in the margins and A lot of the people that I mention in there are people in the margins. And all of a sudden, I thought that all of the most important things to me when I read a book or a magazine article or anything are what are in the margins. I write, I have your book right in front of me, Richard, and I have all the things that I found to be the most important are written in the margins. And in a textbook, If it was something I thought that I needed to remember for a test, I wrote it in the margins, or there was a little piece of text that's highlighted in the margin. All the most important things in my scriptures, I write them in the margins. And I thought, that is so true. The people in the margins have the most to teach me. That is where I need to have my effort, you know? The things in the margins of your book are the things that mean the most to me, that resonated with me the most. And that's why I just feel so passionate about making everyone who is in the margins feel as important as they really are. This is just one of the finest things I've ever read about creating a feeling of belonging from a practical standpoint for all Latter-day Saints. And I'm getting past the checklist of presenting a perfect self at church to being able to be real and vulnerable and feel like we belong um, with our messy lives (laughs) that I think we all have. And listeners, we will link to um, Becca's Facebook post, if that's a public Mm -hmm. post, so that you can read this. Um, You may choose to share it in your own church talks lessons. I think Becca would give you a right to do for license to do that. Absolutely. Um, but the visual imagery of, of how you're creating the boat and this, the swing in unison to actually sort of get to a higher, holier law, a higher, you know, a higher plane, I think is what we talk about in Corinthians 12 and what our leaders want us, want us to do is particularly right now with the focus on belonging um, for everybody. 
Um, I, David, do you have any, we're at the hour and 11 minute mark. Is there any, I want to give you the final thought, but I do want to, I'm back at BYU. This is 1988 and, and um, David is not coming out as gay at BYU, obviously. And right. I don't have the tools to probably know what to say to a gay roommate, but I do recognize that BYU in 2021 is a different place. And there's a lot of LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Let's just talk about a gay man that's out at BYU and his straight roommates are just fine with that. It's wonderful. And not in every situation and not in every roommate, but a lot more happening. And I love the missionary who came out on his mission in a Facebook post. And I think the comment that touched me the most was his current companion. He just said how much he loved him and what a great disciple of Christ he is. And I thought, could I have, how would I have treated you in 1988, if that's roughly the right year, if you had told me you were gay and we were in the same apartment complex? I hope I would have written what that missionary companion wrote, um, that I just see you as a wonderful disciple of Christ and a wonderful man, and I'm honored to be your roommate and not withdrawn in any way. I hope to me that's what Becca and and Dave are teaching us is to come together as the same human family. Elder Cook talks about unity and diversity. Um, that's what we're trying to do right now in this podcast and in this church and in this country. And that's how we heal each other and come together. So I'm so glad, Becca, for you reaching out and the work you're doing and your great heart. Um, Dave, I'm grateful for you. I hope you realize you're a hero to me and many that are listening. You have walked, you know, decades on a road with very little owner's manual, but in some ways, personal revelation and a core feeling of who you are and perhaps foundational principles from that mission in your life that did help navigate you. And, but I just think if your heavenly parents could sit here on the table and talk about you, I think you would be shocked with how much they love you and how proud they are of you and what you've done and what you've accomplished. And a lot is not aware to many people. And the pain perhaps is not aware broadly to many people and the things you've had to navigate and the sacrifices you've made to return to the church and that you will need to be alone um, to, to, have, to fully participate in the church and the sacrifice that is. But with all that said, let's give Dave Woods, my former BYU roommate, <laughs> I just gave you a big, we gave each other a big hug for some reason when Dave walked into my home. I just, I, you know, I wish I could have given you that big hug in 1988. Anyway, would you give us some final words? I think something that you've said and also in your book that to be accepting and non-judgmental as members of this church, judgment is left to Christ, not and not us on this earth. That we are encompassing all of us, and that, like Becca said, the marginal people they need to be included. I look back, um, and sometimes I wish I would have a, a chance to port myself back when Jesus was on the earth and teaching. Those were the marginal people. <laughs> Those were the marginal people. <laughs> and how accepting. 
and helpful to them as he laid out his gospel. And we need to look at it in this day and age the same. And that we need to not be judgmental to people and accept people coming back as they are. And over the period of years and stuff like that, I think that is what I've sort of felt all along. Thank you. David Woods, Becca Clements, for being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler, and an invitation from all three of us to our listeners to just act out any impressions that came into your mind um, during this podcast and um, follow up on those impressions. And that's our message. Thank you.